The Business of Agriculture podcast is brought to you by Land Trust. Did you know sportsmen spend over $5 billion annually in hunter and angler access fees? Land Trust is a platform that connects sportsmen with farmers and ranchers like you who have untapped profits just by providing access to their land. Go to landtrust.com slash BOA, as in business of agriculture, to see how much you might add to your bottom line. Greetings. Hey, welcome to the Business of Agriculture podcast. It's me, your host, Damian Mason. Got a great show for you today. We're talking big picture about the economics of agriculture. We're talking about the, the CPI, inflation, its impact on all of us. What's thing? What are, what is happening at the farm gate? You know, they're probably poised to have the best year they've had maybe ever, but certainly since 2012 to 2013, 2014. Got a tremendous guest. His name is Kurt Covington, he is. And I will read this title to make sure that I have this right. Kurt Covington, the Senior Director of Institutional Credit with Ag America Lending. We're talking about what's going on out here, the big picture, farm economics, uh, where things are going, and what it means for all of us. Financial challenges, financial opportunities. We're going to make it really interesting. We're not going to get over here talking about debits and credits and ledgers and balance sheets. You know what? We're going to, we're going to make it interesting. So just bear with me. Anyway, his name's Kirk Covington. Welcome to the show. You mean, thanks for uh, having me. Oh, I appreciate you being here. So Kurt and I know one another because we both were speakers. He was in a different life back then. He can tell you uh, it was for the Texas Bankers Association a couple of years back. And so uh, it turns out, and I'd forgotten, I knew that I'd run across him. We took a cab ride to the airport. That's the glorious and glamorous life that we lead when we fly around the country to different conferences and speak. Then next thing you know, you're standing out there and it's like, uh, hey, man, I'm thumbing it. Can I get a ride to the airport? So, Kurt, did I get your title right? Yes, you did. All right. And, and all the topics I talked about uh, and introduced, you're good with all those things. Am I right? You bet. All right. So before we get going any further, I want to remind our dear listeners and our viewers, because that's right, it's a YouTube channel as well as a audio podcast. If you aren't a viewer, please go to the Damian Mason channel on YouTube and hit subscribe. Damian Mason channel on YouTube. Click subscribe. Don't cost nothing. And you'll see great content. This episode is sponsored by Harvest Profit. Harvest Profit is a software solution for agricultural enterprises to help your agricultural enterprise be what it is supposed to be. And that is profitable. Since we're talking about money in this episode, and the economy, it's important to always bear in mind that you work in business to earn a profit. Let Harvest Profit help you do that. All right, Kurt, big picture. Um, I said back in November, we got inflation. I said, who the hell thinks we don't have inflation? We got commodity prices from July till November had gone up a significant amount. And I said, ag is a leading indicator. A lot of people don't realize that ag is a leading indicator tends to be off cycle. When ag does really poorly, the rest of the economy is doing okay. When, when the rest of the economy was in the shitter in 2008, 9, 10, we were just throwing money around out here. We were thriving. And I said, who thinks we don't have inflation, doesn't understand inflation? And then fast forward to today, gas is up 50%, grocery prices up, depending on which category you're talking about, somewhere between 11 to, to more percent. Uh, a sheet of plywood at Home Depot is five times what it was just three months ago. What's the deal on inflation? What's it mean for ag? Well, you know, that's a really good question. Uh, Damon, here's kind of how I describe that. You know, you know, food, farmers, ranches, whenever the CPI goes up, we're, we're pretty easy targets, aren't we? Uh, and, you know, it's always the top of the broadcast. And it's always been that way. 
Um, I, I think I'll kind of just describe food inflation kind of differently, maybe than just looking at the cold, hard food facts. You know, I think, um, and if and if you believe the statistics, they say that uh, food retail food costs this year will go up somewhere between three and four percent. And of course, they were up probably what three, three and a half percent. But if you take a long-term view of food costs, the long-term view of food costs, say for the past twenty years, it's only grown at about the the, the rate of inflation, right? Somewhere in the two you know two percent range, roughly. But here's kind of an interesting thing I look at. You know, you have to you have to look at this. What I would say is put some perspective to some of this. And I think that Americans today spend somewhere around 9, 10% of their disposable income on food. Last year alone, they spent about 6% on subsidized health care. Subsidized health care. No one helped them subsidize their food costs, right? So they're subsidized. I think 5% on gas costs, just gas alone. Mm-hmm. So when I, when I take a look at, at the potential for the increase in food costs, yes, it's there. But I also think, you know, when you ask, what does this mean for agriculture? Um, I, 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 would, I would say this is right. I didn't, I, I think it kind of breaks down into kind of a needs versus a wants issue for, for many people. I think of those farmers that are farming commodity crops are probably gonna benefit from this, right? I mean, corn, beans, wheat are gonna see real benefit from this, just like they did in the last run up of, of um, commodity, right? In the commodity super cycle about five, six years ago. I think the ones that suffer the most probably are some of the high-end specialty crops. I mean, I take a look today, I've been grocery store yesterday, and I think uh, when avocados, you get three avocados for five bucks, perhaps a year from now, it's going to be five avocados for three bucks. And so those specialty crops are the ones that I think tend to suffer the most. I've been looking at almond prices lately from a high of 450 you know, three and a half, four years ago, the average price today that the farmer's going to get on that is going to probably be in the dollar eighty range. So yeah. those specialty crops tend to be the ones. Are you saying the reason, Kurt, is because specialty crops then they go up a lot, so they're they're more price elastic. Uh, I'm, I'm hearing they they go up a bunch more and then they crash down a lot more. Is that what I'm hearing? Yeah. So. It's really interesting you say that, right? There's been a study done. I think the study was done by Rabobank several years past. And they said, well, which agricultural commodities are the most elastic versus the most inelastic? And most of us would say, well, gosh, right? Dairy products, you know, protein, those are all inelastic, right? If I'm down to my last dollar, I'm going to go out, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to spend it on beef, pork, poultry, cheese, butter, right? The reality of the matter is, and I think it's kind of the changing world we see today, is that, you know, um, consumers today would sell their children for a cup of coffee at Starbucks, (laughs) right? They would mortgage their home for bottled water. And that's what the study shows, right? Down on the inelastic, the elastic end of it are all the things when you and I grew up, we're inelastic. Yeah. And by the way, since we know that you and I, I've got a degree in agricultural economics and you're, after all, got a, a, a advanced degree from some fancy place and you work in this, to explain at elastic and inelasticity, because there's probably someone listening like, hey, I kind of understand, but you know what? I tune into the Business of Ag podcast to make me smarter. Go ahead and give them a quick uh, layman's, layman's uh, example. My view of it is if I have a certain amount of disposable income and that's $1, of disposable income to spend every month. First question is, what do I spend it on, right? And assuming 
50 cents of that $1 is going to be spent on food. There are certain food items that we look at and say, okay, I can forego that, right? And it, it doesn't necessarily impact my lifestyle or my health or my basic needs to survive, right? And so the inelastic ones are the ones that you're going to buy no matter what. Yeah, so the, yeah, so the, the layman's terms is it's inelastic if it's essentially fundamental, you will, you will consume it regardless. Whereas then um, a set of golf clubs for an average person would be more, more elastic. Whereas uh, milk, water, housing, and uh, whatever else would be inelastic. That's what we're saying. Correct. Then we have those categories within food, meaning as uh, Kurt was saying, Things that we used to think were like, okay, your basics, man, your cereal, your milk, your, your, your loaf of bread, your dozen eggs, those things do not move, man. The consumer is going to eat those. You know, that's why the blizzard is predicted by God what flies off the shelf. But there has been a little bit of a change as you're talking about. Today's consumer has, places a certain amount of inelastic demand on Starbucks. Yeah. You know, and I think there's one other thing we have to consider, too. Anybody that watches TV uh, sees this. And so I think it's when you look at the cost of food and we've drilled this into people's head for years, Damien, right? It's not that the actual cost of food is increasing at the rate that they report. It's the cost of packaging and the cost of delivery through the retail level, right? And more importantly today than maybe anything in the, just in the last 10 years is the way we buy food. I mean, I want, I mean, the, the preponderance in the grocery store today of pre-prepared, pre-packaged, pre-ready, and the advertisement that goes along with it, right? That shows someone sitting at the dinner table and says, wow, this is really good. I don't have to cook anymore, mm-hmm. right? I don't have to cook. I don't have to go shopping anymore. I can have it delivered to me, pre-packaged uh, and ready to eat. So, we have to be careful sometimes when we, you know, put all that back on the farmer and say, well, the farmer, the cost of food uh, and somehow the farmer's benefiting from all this. Um, I would say, you know, your listeners and, 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 and just generally speaking, need to really take a look at the components of food costs and that the farmer himself or herself or themselves as a family don't always see the benefits that cross the, 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 the grocery store shelf. Okay, so several, we got so many fun things to share here, and we're going to get into this, dear, dear listener, but uh, I think it's important because you know what we like to do? We arm you, the listener, and I always say share this podcast with your non-agricultural friends because they'll have an insight on what they're seeing and hearing, seeing in the media and seeing in the grocery store. I'm at the YMCA, and I'm exercising, and they put up, you know, your basic uh, media is on the TVs. And so I just glance over and I see a chart and it says gasoline up 45%. And they talk, of course, about lumber, all that. We know what that's doing. But there's a beef up 11%. Well, I've got, a, I was just on, I had a podcast with a gentleman that said, here's the tough part. All that money, <clears throat> that beef's up 11%, but none of that margin is being uh, appreciated at the farm gate. Uh, he's a big beef feeder and he is breaking even. And uh, he said at the same time, your fat steer that's 1400 pound steer that goes through the processing plant is making $1,200 of margin for the packer. So uh, as you say, the interesting thing is the consumer absorbs a bit of, of 
food price increase at the grocery, how much of that do we actually see? And by the way, uh, I did put this in my book, which I'd be uh, remiss if I didn't think my agricultural book about past, present and future of agriculture. It's called Food Fear. How much of your paycheck goes to food? Now, these are from 2016 numbers. Uh, as you said, 9.9% of disposable income is spent on food, but that's divided between at home, 5.2%, and away from home, 4.7%, which changed a little bit in the last year. A lot less got eaten away from home. Uh, so that's disposable income. And to put it in another perspective, the average American spends 6.4% of gross income. So you're 6.4% of pre-tax income. So now the, uh, the stats are there. <clears throat> What does it mean for us, though, that we've got this inflation? Let's talk. Let's bring it back to us in ag, okay? I'm a farm owner. I'm 280 acres of land. About 200 or so of it is tillable, cash rent, et cetera. The balance is in timber, pasture, CRP. Land is up. Just heard it on uh, rural uh, media this morning. 5 to 15% in the last six months, depending on where you are. Does that continue? Um, so can I step back a second before we get I want you to, I want you to step way back, whatever you want, man. It's your, you're the, you're the guest. You know, I, this is, you raised something really interesting and it goes back to this whole, this whole idea of, you know, what, what is the, when we talk about rising food costs, somehow everybody thinks that just goes into the pocket of the farmer or when, um, you, you know, you, all these thoughts that farmers are nothing but corporate Greedy. Yeah, right, right, right. Factory factory farmers on industrial agricultural uh, operations uh, being heavily subsidized and uh, destroying the environment. Those are the four top. And very poor stewards of their assets. There you go. That would be like me saying, well, you know, I'm really not happy with the way my grass looks in front of my house. So I'm going to go burn my house down. (laughs) So I mean, I think part of this is I revert back, and you'll remember this, Damien, the milk market crash in 2009. Milk prices in the fall of 2008 were $17, give or take, depending on what part of the country you're in, right? $15 to $17 a hundred weight. Back to the farmer. So back to the farmer at $15 to $17. They made maybe a, a buck, buck a hundred weight on, on their milk. Maybe, kind of depending on where they were. By the, by the spring of next year, the price had declined to the support level of $9.90. And for that entire period from the, the winter, early spring of 2009, until the following year, it wiped out generations of dairymen from Wisconsin through Minnesota, through California into Iowa, and all the major dairy sheds, New York, all the major dairy sheds across the U.S. But you know what? The price of milk went down in the retail. It did go down in the retail store. It went down by 25 cents a gallon. Yeah. So it had a it had essentially been at call it uh, your you know, we've been 229 at the grocery store because hell milk's always yeah. somewhere at 229. It goes down to 204, 209, whatever. And at the farm gate. The farm gate price went down by roughly half. We went from yep. 17 bucks to 990. So you're talking about a 85, whatever that is, percent uh, decline and a 5% to 10% decline at the at the grocery store. Now, another example, since we're staying on this one, is a lot of the consumers, and again, dear listener, pass this on to your suburban friends so they can understand a little bit about food pricing. Remember the argument? Food for fuel. 
You're taking food from poor people because things were really good seven, eight years ago, 12 years ago, 10 years ago. And then the argument was it's because of ethanol. It's because that damned old George W. Bush uh, passed the renewable fuel standards. Didn't think he would because he's an oil guy. But then somehow renewable fuel standards made it so that we're using more ethanol and therefore price of corn. And now food is really expensive in the grocery store. And I got told that. And I said, like, for instance, what? I said, cornflakes. I said, how many bushels of corn do you suppose there are any box of corn flakes? And of course, the answer is like one sixtieth. It's not even a pound of corn, you know, hardly that goes into. So if a bushel of corn has gone up by double, that's still not really reflective because you're talking about less than one sixtieth of a bushel of corn is in a box of corn flakes. Um, so the the blame has always been there and it seems as though the food companies are certainly um, more than willing to allow that to happen because then they make money in the middle. Can I give you another example of that? And then we'll get to land bags. Sure. When um, in California, 80% of the almond crop is exported. Environmentalists, regulators, and the uninformed say, well, we're, we don't have enough water in this state. We have enough water if we live in L.A., We've got plenty of water if we live next to Nancy Pelosi, who gets her water for free down the Hetch Hetchy Reservoir, and it comes directly into San Francisco without a charge. But all those farmers, they're actually exporting all of our water because they're exporting 80% of the almond crop to um, the Asian market, where the standard of living is improved, yes, to the point where they enjoy eating pricey almonds. So this argument that, oh, we're exporting water, therefore farmers are bad people. And I think about that, you know, and it makes me just kind of wonder what kind of world we're living in. Everyone talks about wanting a global society, but as soon as you take something away from them, yeah. it becomes very personal. Because what do consumers ultimately care about? I, by the way, Kurt, and this, we're, we're off, which is fun. This is a lot of fun. I tell I go to these ag conferences and then they, it's always the same story. They have somebody that calls themselves an advocate who gets up and says, and we just need to tell our story to the consumer. And I'm like, you know what? That's cute. But the consumer doesn't give a shit about your story. You know, what the consumer cares about themselves. Like you said, That's right. they want their water. They want their own. They want their cake and they want to eat it too. Right. The fact that you want to give their entire story about why you cut needle teeth out of pigs and it's good for the pigs. You're like, ah, I'm horrified. I just want my, just want my sausage. Okay. Um, so let's get to land values. Well, let's talk about that. But before we do so, we better also recognize once more Harvest Profit. Harvest Profit's a company founded by my man, Nick Horeb. Nick Horeb, he's not a software engineer. He's a business guy that saw a need in the marketplace. Agriculture needed a software solution that worked for agriculture. And so he went about creating this software. He's got all kinds of products for you. You can go to harvestprofit.com and see what products might work for you. It's You can even get a free 14-day trial. Harvest Profit is the company, harvestprofit.com, software for you. Okay, um, land values. So I'm hearing it according to Farmers National Company. Uh, I believe they've been a client of mine and they are uh, a real estate agricultural uh, organization. Reports that uh, 5 to 15% up on land values, and that's roughly in the last six months. There's a lot of pressure on this because when you give a farmer money, what's the first thing they do? Figure out how to expand the operation, 
Well, actually, that's the second thing. First thing is figure out how they can avoid paying taxes because, by God, there's one thing those farm people hate to do is pay taxes. Um, right. And there, there's pressure on land. Um, does it continue? Uh, do interest rates change? What's your perspective on that? Because there's a lot of things are kind of crazy right now out here. You can't buy a damn pickup truck because there's no chips. Uh, went to the chainsaw store yesterday. Uh, there's one third as many chainsaws. It's crazy out here. Tell me about land. Yeah, so Damien, this is really an interesting question, right? And the challenge is always is on one hand, the question that gets asked, and these are from people that are smarter than me that study this kind of stuff. What drives land value more? Is it commodity prices that support repayment of a loan on that property? Or is it interest rates, which make it a great investment that gets a good rate of return for either a farmer and or an investor. So I, I think there's two components to this. And I'll give you my personal opinion, which, you know, is maybe worth a cup of coffee at Starbucks. Since oh, we're no, it's worth more than that. We wouldn't have you on here. Okay, go ahead. So I think interest rates play a much bigger role than commodity prices. I think interest rates play a much greater role than commodity prices. And in certain portions of the country, like out west, water plays a more important role than the commodity. Yeah. yeah. And yeah, if you so look at Texas as, as an example, Texas land values are driven by gallons per minute. You know that. It's not yeah. how much yeah. Yeah. gallons per minute you can get out of the ground. If you if that's you have, correct, you have good well flow, your ground is worth more. Right. And that, go ahead. Go well, ahead. here in Indiana, we'd say it's more about soil type productivity because we don't have a water issue here. Um, but yeah, I've always thought that, uh, I, well, you, you and I both know, you go to these arid places that are also very agriculturally productive, but only if they have the water, say, how much is that ground right there going to sell for? And they say, does it have the water or does it not have the water? And it's completely dependent on that. Well, and, and, and that's exactly right. But I think interest rates, if, if we start seeing rising interest rates, we're going to see a decline in land value holistically across the U.S. Uh, and um, what has been supporting it this long is clearly, I think, lower interest rates, even though commodity, well, I say general commodity, corn and beans, right? Corn and beans generally haven't exactly supported um, the acquisition of real estate for the average everyday farmer. But I will tell you, Without a doubt, there has been a lot of pent up cash in the pocket in rural America. And whether that's doctors, lawyers, dentists, farmers that have have squirreled away money, there is still a lot of cash in rural America. And I would say, lastly, and you know this as well as I do, and I don't know if it's a good thing or a bad thing, you get up an entire show on this, is whether the institutional buyers that are out there, maybe you're audience wants to know what I mean by an institutional buyer, but, you know, with private equity firms, agricultural REITs, uh, who, who have access, ready access to capital and can purchase and acquire land, large plots of land, and um, will pay market price for that. Yeah, and sometimes, and sometimes they set market price because they yeah. are willing to bid up to higher numbers. And yes, if you don't know what an institutional investor is, like Kurt's discussing here, it could be a pension fund, it could be right. 
tend rich people that, uh, you know, uh, they get together, they, you know, family offices is a thing we hear sometimes discussed. The family office is something that uh, absolutely meant nothing to me as a poor car, poor blue collar kid, but it means uh, wealthy families that have tremendous amounts of assets. And there seems to be a lot of pressure on real estate and the, uh, in the farm in the farm market do these prices stay up then because interest rates are going to stay low is my assertion because the federal government desperately needs these interest rates to stay low because we have we are in record territory of debt like we have not seen we're in more debt now than we were to defeat world war ii to win world war ii if we raise interest rates by a couple percent all of a sudden our debt repayment is untenable am i right you're correct. So here's my prediction. Midwest land values will stay up. And no matter what interest rates look like, out west land prices are going to go down. There's too much pressure uh, from uh, from lack of water, too much regulatory pressure. Uh, there is uh, and, and if interest rates were to climb uh, is 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 also going to weigh heavy on it. But we're seeing it right now. We've seen more land trade out in the western part of the U.S., and we've seen in a long time. And most of that is those that are in that want to get out are finding people who maybe the, the, the dumb and dumber philosophy is that some people say, well, water, you know, th- this will turn around. Well, the difference between this turning around 10 years ago in California, as an example, and in other Western U.S. Uh, or, uh, US states is that the government is stepping in now. And the worst thing you can have happen is is to find yourself in a position where you don't control your major resource to grow a crop. And in the Midwest, major resource is not irrigation in most cases. I mean, God delivers that for us, right? Um, It's other things, you know, it's fertilizer, it's chemicals, it's labor. But out West, no water, the land, we're seeing land values trade and, you know, just across the board. We've seen some deals come in on land that would have traded $25,000 an acre with water today, with two sources of water today is trading at $10,000 an acre less with one source of water. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so those acres, do they become nature? Because there's some stuff in those Western states, California, I keep up a bit with my, I've got a guy that's been a, a, a guest on here a number of times and whatnot. So I keep up a little bit, certainly I'm not as familiar as the people in California. They're environmental groups that then also gain political power because again, if you're in the, if you're in the coastal part of California, you don't have any clue what's happening out there in the San Joaquin Valley and in the productive parts. You know, there's a call to put those acres just back into nature to to renature. I think is the word they're calling it, uh, those right. acres, and that means some of the most productive areas, and they grow stuff that we can't grow. And I've always said they shouldn't be making milk in California. The number one dairy state is California. Should it be, Kurt? You and I both right. would agree. Why the hell do they make milk there? Milk is water intensive. Uh, yep. if, but they should be making almonds. They should be making almonds there. What happens? So I think first thing that happens is I think we're going to see a decline in land values. Um, we're going to then see hopscotch farming in order to manage water needs. So if a, if, if a farmer needs four acre feet of water to grow his almond crop and he's got an older set of almond trees over here. He's probably going to push those out. He'll still have water available to him from that piece of property to help irrigate, you know, his younger trees over here. So you're going to see a lot of hopscotch farming. They suggest there could be as much as 600,000 acres that goes out of production in the next 
five to 10 years, who knows? But then what's going to happen is you get to the point, unless they can find some other place to grow almonds, you get to the point where there is um, a, a, the supply and the demand eventually cross over each other again from an economic standpoint and say, whoa, the demand is far exceeding the supply of almonds. And you'll see those productive acres that have water that those land values will start to climb and climb rapidly. Quite honestly, at the end of all this, and it's not just California, it's in other places in the country. The smartest farmers in the areas where water is important have found that the ones that are, the, the haves and the have nots when this is all over are gonna be the ones, not that have the largest land base, but have the largest pool of water available to them. I years ago did a thing for California cotton and uh, uh, we talked about this and it was, the guy told me a statement, he said, no statement I hear, uh, whiskey's for drinking, but water's for fighting. Right. That's just something that we don't think about in places like Indiana, where I'm from, although I live half the year in Arizona. In fact, God, there's only going to be dairy farms in Arizona if they can get water because, uh, again, same thing. So what about the money? Um, farm, you know, we said we we're going to talk about money at the farm gate. And you, you're dealing with a lot of different stuff, but you see a lot of stuff come across your, your, your desk and information. It's pretty healthy out here, right? Financially, aren't we well off? Yeah, so no one likes to talk banker language, even bankers. But as a general rule of thumb, you kind of measure this, you know, the, the condition of agriculture across the U.S. by the amount of working capital the typical farmer has and their debt to asset ratio. In other words, how much debt per dollar do I have for every dollar in assets? And of course, all those assets, it kind of depends on the mixture of assets, right? But well, you just talked about it. What if a bunch of my assets where I said, I own 1,000 acres of farm property in California, you'd say, boy, let's go, we're going to do a write down of what we call those values because right now we all, Correct. We all know, say, all right, that 1,000 acres used to be worth 25 million and now it's worth 10. You know, here's what I would say. It's kind of becoming very bifurcated out there. We see farmers that still have very strong balance sheets that have done a really good job of managing their costs and their operation have even during the tough times for corn and beans and cattle and hogs and poultry and milk and just keep going, have done a really, really good job of being nimble and managing their costs. And everyone says, oh, you know, it's just too hard. For, you know, it's a capital intensive business. It's too hard to manage your costs. Well, I got news for your listeners. Anybody that thinks a farmer can manage their revenue doesn't know how farming works. Right. Far farming, um, they're price takers, not price setters. They take the ultimate risk. They put a crop in in the spring. Hopefully there's no drought. Hopefully there's no freeze. Hopefully there's no snow. I mean, just go through the whole litany, right? But at the very end, nine months later, their banker is sitting there saying, we made it through another year. Right? The farmer's saying, we made it through another year. But the reality of the matter is they're just, they've been so nimble and so good at managing costs and seeking advice in that area and working with their bankers and working with their CPAs. And, 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 but I think there's bigger challenges out there for agriculture that we should probably talk about if there's time. Well, there's always time because you know what? I like you being on here. By the way, um, 
we should also point out because there's probably somebody saying, hey, man, it doesn't talk about California ag this much. We should point out that it can be argued that it's climatological, but also much of the water issues that are changing the value and the productivity of California are political issues, not necessarily climatological issues. Am I right? Correct. Yeah. Uh, and it changes a lot of balance sheets. Uh, so these things have these these political movements have uh, real impacts on the finances of people that are doing this. All right, um, we got uh, we got to talk then about what you're seeing at the farm stuff. So right now things look really healthy. Um, to me, they look really healthy. The revenue is good. We might be setting a record. Last year, the federal government threw a whole bunch of money at ag because it was a crappy year, and this year, that's probably not going to happen as much, right? This is really an interesting point, uh, Damien. You know, they had the CFAP program, the Coronavirus Food Assistance Program, farm, farm to consumer, whatever, whatever you want to call that program. Sure, had, had two of them. Had the one and yeah, two. Right, really benefited the dairy industry for the lunchbox program. Benefited the the fruit industries uh, uh, for that lunchbox program. And so, you know, honestly. I'm not a I'm not a big fan of government intervention, but it was a smart, 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 smart thing, right? As opposed to the alternative, which could have been a really difficult thing. I the, I think 2021. If you're going to ask me, yeah, people always ask me, uh, what what are your predictions for you know 2021 in this case for agriculture? And I kind of grade it. You know, I was just a C student, right? So I know an F from an A, right? And um, I would have said, and this is short as probably 18 months ago, we were probably in the C to C plus range because, you know, grains were kind of in the tank yeah. and beans were just following that. The beef industry was having you know, cow calf operators. I mean, I just go across, right. Just go across, across the board. There were other sectors that were still doing pretty well. Right. And, and so I take last year and I kind of, throw it out for some of those sectors because it was not normal. It was not, you know, survival of the fittest. There was a lot of government intervention, both on the consumer side, which is, by the way, driving some of this CPI. I, don't get me started on, you know. So when, the, when, the government throws money, when the government throws money at everything, when the government pays people to not work, work becomes worth less, which then is the definition of inflation. With every dollar that the government's throwing at stuff, that means that we've just devalued the dollar, unfortunately. Right. That's okay. Hey, our listeners are smart. They can get it. So I think I think uh, the economy today is, or the farm economy today, and I'm, I'm, I'm going to go out on a limb and say we're almost at a B plus. I think 2021 is going to be a B plus year. Now, that depends on what happens with interest rates. Because here's the deal, and people say, well, if it, and I mentioned this earlier, right? Interest rates to me influences real estate values more than commodity prices. That's just my personal opinion. And I, I'm, I'm not an expert on this. That's just my personal opinion from what I've seen over the last 45 years. But what it really impacts is their operating side of their business. Yeah. Because they go to their bank and their bank gives them variable rate money. And all of a sudden, your interest rate on their operating loan, instead of being three and a half percent, is now four and a half or five and a half. That's that's real money that comes out of a farmer's pocket right at the bottom line. And it's not like he can go to his processor and say, hey, my interest rate just went up. I need another 20 cents a bushel for my corn. So I'll expect to see that check in the mail. It's not yeah. how 
first. And that's where you talk about managing cost as the as the big thing. And obviously, frankly, it becomes if you can manage your cost of money. But uh, like you said, you can usually lock in capital long term uh, for for capital improvements. Let's say grain bins or, or new almond grove or whatever thing we should be talking about. But you have a hard time doing that on yearly operating loans. And to our listeners that are getting this passed on to them from their ag friends. I've got, I got my neighbors in Arizona and their million dollar homes that might think they're rich. I'm like, yeah, well, I know a guy up the road that uh, drives a pickup truck and he's got that much money in, in the air every day. He's got a million dollars of capital in the air every day. Like he has your house value just, just in the air every day or double that or triple that. And it's in his operating uh, line of credit. Winners and losers. Um, You know, beef, the beef people uh, at the farm gate are breaking even, is my understanding right now. Uh, dairy, my guy that rents my land's a dairy operator. They're up. They are starting to be up. They were not up at the beginning of 2021. Obviously, corn, soybeans, wheat looks to me like all winners. Yep. What, what else? Where, where are winners and losers in this whole ag? Because it's not going to be all of us, is it? Right. It's not. So here's, boy, that's a really good question. So the two that you haven't talked about, and I don't know if they're winners or losers, I'm going to go on the loser side of this, but just just barely over the center line. I think the tree fruit business or the fruit business in general, uh, they're not going to see what they saw last year. Mm -hmm. I think the veg business is probably going to struggle a little bit as well. Last year, Keep saying it again, right? You got to throw that year out. People were shopping at the grocery stores. They were buying stuff. The retailers were, and anybody that, any retailer that wants to call me, feel free. We're taking advantage of that. And as we're marketers, and my, I just think these higher value add wants versus need commodities are the ones that are going to struggle a little bit. Yeah. So um, what you're talking about here is, you know, throughout 2020, it's, it's convenient for us to say that we didn't um, we didn't have to plow down our lettuce and we didn't have to go out and, and, right. and kill uh, our crops. Whereas a lot of these specialty producers did once the salad buffet is not open because uh, the restaurants aren't open. And believe it or not, a lot of people don't eat salad buffet type food at home. They don't they don't go through and pick the garbanzo bean and put it on top of the cauliflower, on top of the broccoli with some raisins right. and, some, and some sesame seeds. Think of all the crap that's in a salad buffet. The average person doesn't buy all those components. So a bunch of these farmers and that. So do you think losers or, or, or break evens on uh, tree crops and, and fruits, uh, nuts and fruits, you think uh, break even at best on veggies? Yeah, I'd say probably a break even in that market. And again, I'm assuming we don't have any major catastrophes that are. I mean, it's only it's only summer, but uh, we've also. Things are opening back up. Kurt, does a bunch of money just start pouring in all of a sudden? These, of course, the problem with a tree crop or a vegetable crop, it's already in. It's already it's it's what is it's good. It's already here. I mean, you're not going to like plant more. And you got two weeks to sell it. Yeah. It's very perishable. It's very perishable. Right. You get two weeks to sell it. Um, other areas, um, we talk about inflation. If you owned a bunch of land, you're probably going to be a winner because if it's up five to 15% already, it's not, if it goes down 10%, you're still up for the year, right? Right. The, 
The ones that are going to start seeing the impact of that are the tenant farmers. Not, maybe not this year, right? They probably already had their, I mean, right? Their rental arrangements are set up. They're probably a little longer term. But if if these food costs, are we going into another food super cycle? I don't know. You and I lived through the super cycle when corn was eight bucks and beans were 17, and, right? People were planting new homes instead of corn on their property and buying brand new pickers, vacation homes, 40 foot diesel pushers, you name it. Whether we see that again, I don't know. But the tenants are going to start seeing increase in, in rental costs. Yeah, I, I agree with that. Um, we talked about money and we said about inflation. We, we got a little off course, but that's okay. It was also very educational. We went in and found a few new topics, which I love about the dialogue. What else on the subject? Farm finances, inflation, and the ag economy. Well, I think if I could just talk about what I think are becoming some broader issues and that the farms either aren't dealing with very well or it's out of their control. So I'll break these out. The first one is um, the average age of the average farmer is 60, what, 62 now? or 59 and a half, 60. It's been around 60. And then every year we say, okay, they're getting older. Yep. Uh, I think this business transition, you know, transitioning the business to the next generation is a going to be, when, when we look at, when we look at, 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 Farmers and and they want to borrow money from us. And it's not just us, it's all of us. There's more and more questions, two major questions that are now being asked. One is: so what's your what's your management secession plan or your ownership secession plan? How long has that been being asked? Probably the last 10 years for sure. And how many of those farmers come back with a with 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 a plan? <laughs> with a plan. It says, and, and you know, here's the deal. It's not just about survival of the business. It's about paying 40% of any sale of that property. If you don't have a transition plan to a or government capital, capital gains or yeah, the money properly. Now with the whole stepped up basis thing. Okay. So first question is that you think looking at farm finances and the ag economy is the fact that we keep getting older, but I've been hearing that story my whole life. America's getting older. Also, Kurt, the media right. in America is 38. When I was born in the 1969, it was 27. So we're getting older in general. Um, succession- we got a lot of older farmers that don't want to give up the reins. Yeah, yeah. So I, I get it. I get it. Right? They just I know better than you. You know. Um, yeah. I, I I get it. it. It's a it's a fact. They grew up getting in their pickup, going to the coffee shop, coming back, getting the work done. And, you know, um, the kids today have gone through ag colleges. They have a lot of great ideas, but the challenges is actually not, the first challenges is talking about it. The second challenge is doing something about it. There's no question. All right, other things you see, uh, while we're wrapping up here, at the- Labor costs. At the ag economy, what's that? Labor costs. Oh. And that with inflation, again, I'd say that really what happened, the Democrats, and, and I'm not going to get political here, but it's pretty obvious. It was indeed the the administration in power right now that essentially has propped up everything and then made a de facto uh, new minimum wage. If you pay people right. to not work, you basically set a new minimum wage. If you give people money, right. 
to not work. Labor costs at the farm level, uh, do we have to absorb that or are we passing it on as it become everything just becomes inflated because of that? We absorb it just like we always have. You we, think that you don't think we pass it on. You don't think that, that it, or maybe we absorb it for a short term and then, and then the prices reflect it. Yeah. I hope, hopefully that's the case. Right. But you and I know that agriculture is cyclical, right? So maybe we can pass it on for three to four years. Um, and, you know, honestly, that, and, and that's really a good point, right? Because the success of a farmer really is about building working capital. It's hard to build working capital every time you turn around and you have a cost increase in something you don't control, whether that's seed, whether that's fertilizer or labor. Name any other sector of business where you have no control over your revenue and have the cost increases you see here. I mean, people don't understand farmers. I mean, I'm so proud to be an ag banker, right? And I'm proud to be an ag banker because after 45 years, I still look at those farmers and, and they wake up every day, they got a smile on their face, they go to work and they just, this is going to sound really stupid. They just find a way. They just, they just find a way. Yeah. Yeah. Um, last one, age of operation succession plan is going to be an issue and it will affect the economy. And by the way, it affects the economics. If the person's saying, hey, you said this is going to talk about economics. Well, okay, the 35-year-old uh, man and woman that are going to now take over the, the operation, they got to come into a figure, a figure out a way to do that. And the money becomes, frankly, uh, almost uh, overwhelming, depending on right. how old you are. Right. Uh, labor cost. Uh, what's your last one? Thoughts on ag economy, what we're going to see? I just say, look, these farmers, that, the, the ones that survive, the ones that that, that uh, prosper in good times and bad. And this is going to sound like I'm, I'm, you know, writing a book for some speech or something. I don't know. Or, you know <laughs> farmers, re- uh, right. Well, you're you're the guy. I'm not. But here's the thing. Right. It's really important that farmers look at their finances and say, what's my goal? Just where am I? What's my goal? Maybe my goal is to be, you know, debt, I don't know, debt free in, in 10 years. Okay, how do you get there? Well, you earn money. How do I earn money if I don't control what revenue? Control costs. Okay, how much cost reduction am I going to have every year? This amount. What what drives costs? It's all Mr. Economics, it's price and it's quantity, right? So you either have to control the quantity or you have to find a way to control the price. And you know, the really good farmers, they take a look at their top 20%. So any expense that amounts for about 20% of their total revenue, right? In any given year or 20% of their costs, those are the ones you really have to focus on. And this may come out, I'll, I'll probably never be on your show again, but farmers oftentimes rely on the wrong people to get advice from in terms of how to run their business. And I'm not saying anything about necessarily, you know, but vendors are good people to talk to. But, but you know, I, all I say is, is that farmers that are really good about setting goals also have their eyes wide open. By the way, you're not offending anyone. That's why we like you on here. I shot a video a couple of months ago when I was on my hike in the desert. And I said, uh, I, I said, be cautious about those who are giving you advice. Are they benefiting from the advice they give you? And uh, you want to always must look at that. And this is personal also, you know, remember there's a lot of times these people that uh, love drama, they go and tell you something because they know then that you're going to, it's going to benefit them, you know, cattiness, personal stuff, uh, and also professionally goal. I would also add to your thing, 
when you said um, what good ag operators do is they have a goal. I would say that is a short term, mid term, and long term because <clears> you're talking about oh, pass this on to my kids. I'm like, all right, if that's really a goal, what are you doing? On going back to number one succession plan, what are you doing about the economics? What are you doing? And then short term, mid term, long term. So um, I like it. All right, we talked about economy. We talked about we talked about land values. We talked about interest rates. We talked about a whole bunch of stuff in between. He's Kurt Covington. In case any people do want to get a hold of you or send you a, an email that someone's bitching at you, how do they do about doing that? <laughs> Kurt C U R T dot Covington C O V is in victory I N G T O N at agamerica.com agamerica.com love the name and if they and maybe they might need a loan maybe they might need to talk to you about their finances agamerica.com you said yes sir all right so i very much appreciate you being here uh this episode again remember harvest profit harvest profit the software company Tailored to design, their products are for agricultural enterprises, meaning you, the people that are in the business of agriculture. So go to harvestprofit.com, get a free 14-day trial, try out some of their software, look at it, read the articles that Nick Horeb writes in there. And you know what? Try their stuff. It'll help you. Uh, Kurt, thanks for being on here, man. It's a real pleasure, as always. I'll catch you somewhere or in a taxi or Uber, sorry, Uber. Uh, Uber, taxi, you name it, man. And you and I like it. Actually, people are going to listen to this and say, wait a minute, Mason and Covington were on the same stage for Texas bankers. We ought to get them at our conference because those guys, they can carry on, talk about stuff, outlook, big picture, <laughs> not afraid to piss people off. It's perfect. <laughs> You're a good interviewer. All right. Hey, man. Thanks, Kurt. Thank you. All right. Till next time, it's the business of agriculture. Thank you for tuning in to the Business of Agriculture podcast, sponsored by Land Trust. Land Trust partners with farmers and ranchers to capture pure profit from sportsmen seeking new experiences and places to hunt and fish. Land Trust built the platform and does the marketing. You maintain 100% control of access and activities, and you set the rules. There's no cost or obligation when you list, and the next 10 Business of Agriculture listeners who go to landtrust.com/boa are eligible for a gift worth over $2,000.